0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. People in developing countries did very little to cause the extreme heat and other climate impacts evident this summer.
1: We cannot talk about the ability to bounce back from the worst of climate if we do not deal with the ability for communities to lift themselves from poverty because poverty is the greatest underlying driver of vulnerability.
0: In these hard-hit and vulnerable communities, women are at the forefront of needed change.
1: The entire livelihood and systems that we depend on, our entire life support systems, are built on a healthy climate and a healthy environment. And that's at stake. And women are at the heart of this transformation.
0: Wanjira Mathai on sustainable development and the power of women, up next on Climate One. Africa is responsible for a tiny portion of global greenhouse gas emissions, yet its people are already suffering some of the world's most devastating climate impacts. And as the global north looks to reduce its addiction to fossil fuels, the minerals required to do so increasingly depend on exploiting natural resources in the global south, exacerbating a cycle of extraction, environmental devastation, dislocation, and political and social instability. Wanjira Mathai is Regional Director for Africa and Vice President at the World Resources Institute, and the daughter of Nobel Peace Prize laureate Wangari Mathai, who empowered more than 4,000 women's groups to protect and restore their local forests, even in the face of death threats. Wanjira herself has tackled global issues such as landscape restoration, youth leadership, and sustainable development. In doing so, she has focused on the power of emotional intelligence and has repeatedly been named one of the 100 most influential African women. I asked her about the fact that despite G20 countries being responsible for about 80% of emissions, people in poor countries are suffering climate impacts first and worst.
1: It makes me sad. It makes me mad uh, because it is a, a, a great injustice that, just as you've put it, it's it really is the Um, most important question that we must address is that injustice.
0: And how do we do that? And what role can empowering women play in doing that?
1: You know, Greg, one of the things that is is truly important is to acknowledge that injustice. The first thing is knowing that exactly uh, science is so clear now that The the climate is changing. It's changing because of what we are doing to it. The human impact on climate is now indisputable. And then the fact that actually with that climate change will come absolutely unbearable impacts. And those impacts will hit hardest those who have done the least to cause this problem. Now that in itself, if you look at a continent like Africa where I live in in Kenya, what that means for daily life is the disruption of farming, the disruption of movement of goods and services, especially when we have too much water or too little water, which is heavy rains or no rains at all. We are largely uh, a, a rain fed, agricultural economy, the GDP of of many parts of our world are driven by agriculture, rain-fed agriculture. So just imagine for a second the impact of not having rains at the right time, at the right place. It really does wreak havoc on food security. And that is fundamentally what we absolutely need to survive. We haven't even talked about the damage to livelihoods, businesses that are flooded out, businesses that rely on energy that is coming from hydroelectric powers. When water levels are low, you cannot run this. The entire livelihood and systems that we depend on, our entire life support systems are built on a healthy climate and a healthy environment. And that's at stake. And women are at the heart of this transformation. Women drive agriculture on the continent. Women hold their their communities together, their children together. We know from research actually, Greg, that women spend close to 70% of their income on their families when they have it.
0: And how are uh, the impacts are disproportionately landing on women who often fetch water, often cook over dirty cook stoves. So how are the impacts disproportionately affecting women and what impacts are you already seeing personally?
1: Well, we have those impacts that are are affecting society as a whole, impacts like infrastructure destroyed. And so we cannot have movement of goods and services, which is about trade, which is, of course, about the, the livelihoods of people being able to run their businesses. We have issues of lack of water, which spells havoc in a drought situation, droughts becoming famines and people going hungry. We have millions of people in the East African region at the moment hungry because rains have failed for three, four years in a row. And so we have absolute disasters. And that is women and children most disproportionately affected. We do have an energy crisis. And one of the things that is becoming abundantly clear now is that energy development and climate are inextricably linked. We cannot talk about uh, climate change adaptation, the ability to bounce back from the worst of climate if we do not deal With the ability for communities to lift themselves from poverty. Because, Greg, poverty is the greatest underlying driver of vulnerability. And that vulnerability is what causes so much loss and damage when we have the impacts of climate change. And so being able to build a level of prosperity is very much a part of building resilience. And you cannot build resilience and you cannot build prosperity if you do not have energy. So energy becomes a really important part of the climate discussion. And you will have heard so many of us talking about the the energy transition, the ability for us to ensure that we have Energy security,
0: right. In that transition, we know that uh, the developing countries, if they develop in the fossil-intensive way that the industrialized North developed, uh, that explodes uh, carbon emissions. So, how can that prosperity you're talking about happen in a new, cleaner way? Is it with leapfrogging technology? It's not by following the playbook of Europe and North America.
1: Well, Greg, that's true. but the, here's here's the reality that Africa has uh, is responsible, as you said in the beginning of the program, for four percent of global emissions. Remember that three percent of those are in South Africa. So overall, Africa, outside South Africa is responsible for just 1% of global emissions. We also have 600 million people who are cooking on open fires around the world. We have a majority of those here on the continent. We have poverty levels that are unacceptable, but seven hundred and fifty billion people living under the poverty line, absolutely unacceptable. We have got to make addressing the energy situation also about addressing poverty. And addressing poverty therefore means we have to make available the resources for that clean uh, energy transition. Because we know, unfortunately, Greg, there has been very little solidarity with the vulnerable countries on the renewable energy agenda. Yes, we know that that's the best way to go. Yes, we know that that would be even cheaper, but it takes a significant amount of resources to build the technology and put it in place to deliver renewable energy and sustainable energy for all. The challenge we have today is that of all renewable energy investments globally, only 2% end up in Africa. What are we saying about what Africa needs, what Africa's development needs are, what Africa's economic development needs are with respect to energy, when we only allow 2% of investments in renewable energy? Africa's agenda cannot wait. And that's why there is a discussion around what alternatives does Africa have? Because the skin in the game that most of us have is that we are faced with poverty levels that are unacceptable, but we also see very little solidarity from the North.
0: Right. And that comes down to it. We're in an age, particularly in the United States, where uh, taxpayers don't like to invest even in their own infrastructure, in their own roads and airports, things that you, would, you think would self- serve the country. So it's what's the case to be made for why Americans or Europeans should send their tax dollars to a country, a continent that they know little about where they will probably never travel and it seems so far away to them? How do you make that case other than, you know, kind of the moral obligation you know what's in it for them? Because that, sadly, that case has to be made.
1: Absolutely, Greg. That case has to be made. But no better case was made than with the COVID uh, pandemic. We knew that the COVID pandemic left unaddressed everywhere would be a problem for us everywhere and that's exactly what has happened we would not have had the sort of mutations and and variants that we have now in almost uncontrollable ways if we had made it our business especially as the rich global north who developed this vaccine and instead of treating it like a vaccine for the people to address this disease once and for all they hoarded it this is the sort of solidarity that is called for even in climate, that we cannot address the climate crisis only in our little corners because climate change knows no borders. We will continue to face the worst of climate. Yes, those in developing countries will be most disproportionately affected. But remember, they did not cause this problem. We are fighting a battle that was never ours to fight with tools we do not have and finance we do not have. That is a moral question, and it is still a moral question on climate. I believe for many Americans to understand that their responsibility to address their own emissions, decarbonization as an agenda for the global north is undeniable. There is no clean development pathway with fossil fuels in the north. That is, it, there is no pathway that allows you to do that and get to net zero by 2050. There's a lot of pathways that allow other countries to develop and become a lot more prosperous and able to sustain themselves that allows multiple more options. And we have to give them that old alternative, especially when we are not willing to finance the renewable energy transition.
0: Right. And the the atmosphere doesn't care where, uh, you know, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions occur. It's all the same to the atmosphere. As many in the global north look to reduce their addiction to fossil fuels, the minerals required to do so inevitably seem to depend on exploiting natural resources in the global south. You know, 70 percent of the world's cobalt comes from Congo. I'm haunted by images from The New York Times of children carrying massive sacks of ore on their backs. And yet I recently spoke to Morgan Brazilian from the Colorado School of Mines. While he agreed that his image is deeply disturbing, he suggested that if those children didn't have jobs in the mines, they might starve. What's your reaction to that? Well,
1: I, I think we have to think about it in a different way. Uh, we have to admit that the the the, the relationship, the the interrelation between the north and the south with respect to natural resources has been one of exploitation. I don't think we can say that a lot of those minerals or the the beef industry in in the in the U.S. that is driving the deforestation of the Amazon, or the 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 Green technology industry that is driving uh, mining in 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 the Congo, or even the palm oil plantations that are driving the cosmetic industry in Europe. These are not relationships that have been built on mutual respect and solidarity. And that's where the the challenge is. I think that there should be opportunities for countries to explore, and, and, you know, you look at a country like Ghana that, and, and Côte d'Ivoire that produce 60% of the world's cocoa. They should be controlling a significant amount of the cocoa value chain. That's just not the case. It speaks to the nature of trade that we have today. And until those relationships are fairer, and that's why we talk about fair trade, then we cannot talk about the fact that this is what the poor children of DRC should be doing. We know that those children, we would much rather they're in schools educate, being educated because the country is earning a fair income from their resources. If that was the case, I think it would be very different. This is not a choice for children to be working in the mines. This is definitely not uh, a priority
0: so can that mineral extraction happen can those the terms of that power relationship be be altered can those mines be operated in a cleaner way so that People get paid a living wage. You know, does the DRC have the power to well, do that? Well, those
1: are the questions that have have to be answered by those who are involved in trade and trade relations, and that is an important uh, global architectural system that needs to be addressed. Right? We need to look at how we trade with each other. There's a there's a a real um, shock in, in the system when you look at how far. It takes for supplies to come sometimes from one part of the world to the other. You look at a country like South Africa that buys its rice from Asia rather than purchasing its rice from uh, from Senegal, for example, that produces high quality rice. But there are trade barriers. And that's why we must continue to work on the trade architecture, because that will be part of building Prosperity. Africa's prosperity agenda is serious. We have got in this next decade to build the level of prosperity this continent deserves. And there's absolutely no reason why they cannot trade more with each other. Our intra-Africa trade is historically low. 15% of trade goes on within African countries. You look at Asia, it's about 60%. Europe, 80%. 80%. So we've got to do better with trading with each other and building those trade relationships. And that will continue to to help build, shorten our supply chains, and also build prosperity that is needed.
0: So it sounds like you support deglobalization, which is being talked a lot about in the uh, because of COVID and because of Ukraine disruption to these long supply chains, it sounds like you support more regional trading with neighbors—rice uh, from Senegal to South Africa rather than uh, far away in Asia. So, do you support deglobalization and more regional trading and economies?
1: Well, I, I don't know if it's deglobalization. I support building, uh, short shortening supply chains. Absolutely, building prosperity more regionally. I think we should grow what we eat at. Eat what we grow. Absolutely. We need to do better with regional trade. That's how we'll build prosperity. We need to do better with value addition. That's how we'll build prosperity. There's a reason the president of Ghana continues to talk about the fact that he will start producing chocolate in Ghana. The sooner the better, so that they can build prosperity with the resources that they have. The same should be across the world. And that will be the only way That we can build the sort of prosperity we want to see
0: you're listening to a climate one conversation about sustainable development and the power of women with wanjira mathai coming up how working with her nobel laureate mother changed wanjira's life
1: I always felt like I was basking in her light, and I still do today. Everything good that happens to me, I always attribute sometimes to the inspiration that she was in my life. So that's nothing to me but light.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Wangari Mathai won the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize for her contribution to sustainable development. She started the Greenbelt Movement, which empowered more than 4,000 women's groups to protect and restore their local forests, even in the face of death threats. Wanjira Mathai has continued her mother's work by serving on the boards of both the Greenbelt Movement and the Wangari Mathai Foundation. I asked her to say more about what she means when she says she's basking in her mother's
1: light. I mean, to have had the privilege of working with my mother for 12 years was one of the highlights absolute highlights of my life you know many of us um our mothers do what they do. And when I was growing up, I just thought my mother, that's what my mother did, just like somebody else's mother did something else. And I I knew what she did and she went to work every day and did it, but I never thought it extraordinary in any way. And I never thought her extraordinary. She just did her work with diligence and commitment as I had always known. It was only later that I, I started working with her and I would look over her shoulder and, and I, I really started to appreciate just how genius the work of the Green Belt Movement was and just how genius and connected and thoughtful Uh, she had been in creating this incredible women's movement and, and tapping into the brilliance of those women, their knowledge, to be sensitive. A lot of the communication with these communities was in their local language. She was very keen that people understand what you're telling them, that if we speak in English or Kiswahili, not everybody can understand. So let's make sure that all the Forms that these women are filling and all the people working with them speak their language. And that was a really wonderful thing that catalyzed this movement. And so I, I always felt that to have had the front row seat in this amazing, amazing theater of her life was a, a privilege of very high honor. So I always felt like I was basking in her light and I still do today. Everything good that happens to me, I always attribute sometimes to the inspiration that she was in my life. So that's nothing to me but like,
0: Mm, What a tremendous gift. Thanks for sharing that. How did you come to emotional intelligence? You've been out there talking quite a bit about that, maybe not using that term, but it sounds like some of that you got from your mom. How did you come to that emotional intelligence?
1: Well, actually, uh, a dear friend, uh, Mucha, who who runs uh, an emotional intelligence outfit, heard me talking about the Wangari Mathai Foundation, that we were working to inspire the next generation of leaders to be better uh, uh, stewards of the environment, to, to feel the, their connection to the environment. And she told me, you know what, you really need to connect with Six Seconds, which is a... a, a an emotional intelligence network, I think the largest in the world. And as I started connecting with them, I realized that it was really, in many ways, uh, a way to coach myself into how I think, into knowing myself better and understanding my triggers, understanding Um, how how I present myself, understanding my own emotions and navigating those emotions. And then also being able to be very clear about my purpose. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? Does this give me joy? And being very conscious and thoughtful about it. I just loved the way Six Seconds was unpacking all of this. And, you know, I went into Six Seconds because of my work. And I got sort of too far because I went in because of my work. But I ended up myself being immersed because I learned from the brilliant, leaders at at Six Seconds, Jane and others, that actually, if you, you know, Jane Morrison told me that you cannot come into this for your work and not work on yourself. You are part of the work that needs to be done. So I started that journey myself, being coached and working with with, um, my own uh, certification process. And it was only after the first few lessons that I realized, oh my goodness, it is really about me. It's about me too, not only about what we are trying to do at the foundation. And I just fell in love with their their programs. And I feel like in many ways, it's like a balm, right? You go, I would go there and I just inhale the wonder of how they teach, the beautiful, beauty of the philosophy. And I really love the philosophy, you know, thoughts like, you know, no way is the way. You just, just, you know, you you're okay. Just try it. You know, one, two, three, pasta. Just do it. Go for it. And I just loved that philosophy. And it has it has inspired me sometimes in ways I don't give uh, much thought to because it's just become part of we, the way I present myself, and 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 there's also been a sharpening of of how I think about things, and uh, and you know not necessarily being burdened. One of my favorite thoughts, uh, Greg from from Six Seconds, is the fact that emotions are data; they they're telling you something. So you don't have to get anxious about it. You just have to pay attention. What is this telling me? Why is this happening? What is going on? What is going on in me that I'm having this sense of anxiety, heightened sense of anxiety? So that was, I just love it.
0: Yeah, Six Seconds is an emotional intelligence network. I interviewed uh, one of the people involved, Josh Friedman, with uh, Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book, an Emotional Intelligence. And I remember Josh saying at one point, you know, all change begins within, because we're looking uh, outward. In fact, I recently came across the the quote from Rumi, the Persian poet and theologian, who said, quote, yesterday I was clever, so I tried to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Ooh. Which I think gets to that's really what you're good.
1: That's really talking good. about yeah.
0: so with regard to climate, how do you approach changing the world and also changing yourself with respect to climate disruption? And I'll confess that I struggle with this because I know that all change begins within, and yet the narrative of individual responsibility is one that the oil companies have propagated because they want to turn responsibility away from them and the suppliers back on individuals. So when I say like, I, that, help, you know, how do you sort that one out? If change begins within, how do we not fall into the trap of, oh, it's my carbon responsibility, it's my footprint's the problem, not the energy suppliers who are blocking progress.
1: Well, I think it's it's it begins within because the the reason energy supply is blocking progress is because we are demanding it. We are the we are the creators of that demand. We are the ones who create the demand for for um for fossil fuels. I mean, if we shift, so the market shifts, nothing shifts uh, with demand like markets. I mean, when you consider the fact that Covid hit us and we stopped flying, instantly, the, you know. That. There you go. It was th- There is nothing more powerful than the demand that we present as individual consumers. And that's why consumerism is such an important part of the climate solution. We have to change how we consume. And the more we learn about it, and it's hard work, it's hard work, of course, to shift. It's hard work for me. I'm a work in progress myself. So just trying to make the sort of shifts that we need to make that we are so used and habituated to doing things in a certain way taking hot baths in a certain way, not even thinking about how this water is heated that we are using, you know, to to listen to some of the European conversations right now when they are faced with this energy crisis and to think that if you turn your heat a little bit down, just a little bit, you can save this much if we all do it. It's so fundamental, this adjustment that we all have to make.
0: According to a recent IPCC report, people in climate-vulnerable countries are 15 times more at risk than developed countries. Bangladesh is 15 times more vulnerable than the Netherlands. How much of that is simply geography and how much of that is perhaps trade and some of the things we're talking about that are connected to perhaps colonial legacies?
1: Well, Greg, actually, it is not geography because that very uh, statistic that you've mentioned about the Netherlands and Bangladesh, the Netherlands per capita is at more risk than Bangladesh. Bangladesh should not have uh, as much damage as as uh, the Netherlands because the Netherlands is is more exposed per capita to sea level rise. But we know that in Bangladesh, Given the same situation, Bangladeshis will be 15 times more more uh, affected. So it has nothing to do with geography. It has everything to do with prosperity. Because you build the sort of technologies, that you know. we know how brilliant the Netherlands are about protecting themselves from sea level rise, a sort of research technology that goes into protecting themselves. This is not the case for Bangladesh. And so it is a, it is a difference in, in, um, in prosperity as well.
0: And these developing countries are often characterized as climate victims. You know, what do you think of that frame? You, you frame this as very much of a moral responsibility, but how about that frame of of being victims? I, that- I
1: I don't like the frame of victims because I think it sort of it immobilizes people. I think um, the communities that are that are impacted by climate change are are are. Disproportionately impacted, and they're doing everything they can. I think the image of victim makes it look like they're sitting there waiting. They're not. People are working very hard to think about ways that they can uh, protect their populations, protect their countries, especially you look at the island states, Marshall Islands, and others. They're very busy working on what they can do, but they need the solidarity of the rest of the world because this is not a problem that they created. Absolutely, they need that solidarity.
0: You say that the climate conversation is intellectual and it should shift to more of an emotional one. Talk about that, how people talk about climate kind of up in their head with lots of facts and charts and figures and should be more of a from a different heart-centered place.
1: Right. you know, And I do too. I mean, I know all the science. I, I read it. I'm charged by it. I feel like I'm motivated by a lot of these facts, but it's they it just seems to be, if you look at the very fundamental one, that 80% of the G20 is responsible for global emissions. We are headed like a speed train in the wrong direction. We have eight years, maybe even seven, to arrest catastrophic climate change. Think about that for a minute. We have to do it in the next 7 years it doesn't seem like we're in a hurry when you look out into the horizon and see how we are we are addressing issues of new oil wells or new drilling, especially in the countries whose budgets just don't allow, their carbon budgets just don't allow for them to go in that direction. So you're left with the question, why is it? Why is it that so many people who know the science, the science is out there, and that's why youth are so important in this movement. They they actually can't understand why we have absolutely inertia, nothing but inertia in the face of such devastating prognosis about what's going to happen in the next seven years. And, you know, once, once in a while, I like to sort of remind myself as well, because I get, you know, I work on this every day and then I'm like, think about that for a minute. Like for the last 20 years, when they, when you look at the predictions that were made about the climate 20 years ago, they have come to pass and worse. They have all come to pass what the IPCC said about today Few years ago, a couple decades ago. So why is and the science has gotten better? The science has gotten tighter. Why are we not moving with more urgency? That's the intellectual overcoming the emotional. Because apparently, if we were more connected to the reality of that, we would not be joking about it, and and we would be moving with more haste.
0: Right. Clearly, the way we've been talking about it hasn't has had some success, and uh, some of that. Uh, you know, uh, really, uh, doom and gloom scenario, as you say, has has come to pass, and many things have happened faster than scientists have predicted, and, and other positive things have also happened faster than predicted. You know, Ezra Klein in the New York Times wrote an article recently saying how the drop in solar prices happened a lot faster than even anyone predicted. You know, the, the largest predictions were six percent a year, and it ended up being a lot more than six percent a right. year. So so what, what's happening on the positive side? Because we tend, as climate people, often to look at the dark side, at, you know, the bad things are, are happening faster, the good things are happening slower, and yet there are good things that are also happening fast.
1: Yeah, I mean that is true. There are good things happening fast. There are bad things happening fast. But there good things are not happening fast enough, and that's the difference. I think we need to. Unfortunately, we need to move faster. We've caused untold damage. We've caused with the way we've we've developed, and and I think we have to move fast, but with with justice to acknowledge that there are people who haven't been responsible for this and who must be lifted out of poverty because you cannot adapt to climate change when you're at a certain level of poverty. When you're on the cliff, you're on the cliff, even if you have all the best dikes. I mean, it is literally uh, an issue of, of prosperity as well. And that's why the development agenda for vulnerable countries is so important. The poorest of the poor cannot be allowed to continue. You can't adapt against that. That's just impossible.
0: And one area where I think that comes to home or hits people in the wealthy countries is um, is migration. You know, we know that that uh, hungry people, where there's collapse of agriculture, um, move to seek that, whether it's in Syria or from Central America or from the Mediterranean and, into Europe. And that has rocked the political order. So how about climate migration? You know, do you hear that, you know, kind of saying like, you know, Africa needs to be able to feed itself or else, you know, hungry continents on the move could really rock the political order
1: well even locally i i, I don't even like to think that you know we, we sometimes assume people are very desperate to go out of their countries they are not many people actually would rather be at home and and sure. you know deal with with deal with what they have and and maybe move around and try and and shift and adjust and so by the time people are leaving their homes it's the worst of the worst situation. So I, I think that we have to be prepared for even different kind of migration. There's sort of a uh, a very um, uh, an assumption that's very unhelpful that migration will always be in one direction. We must always remember that and the tree the t- the tides can turn and people will be migrating south. To Africa because they can't sustain their heat where they are or for whatever reason. We must continue to see each other as part of a common human family. We don't, We there's this us versus them, them moving here, them coming here. No, I think we need to realize that if we are not well in Africa, you are not well where you are.
0: You're listening to a conversation about sustainable development and the power of women with Wanjira Mathai. This is Climate One. Coming up, looking to youth to solve problems their parents created.
1: We are seeing a lot more uh, young people coming into their voting age and making a very big statements with their votes and, and informing themselves much more. I am I'm, I'm a lot more optimistic about the fact that we will make a difference because we have no choice. That's up
0: next when Climate One continues. The annual United Nations Climate Summit this year, called COP27, comes on the 30th anniversary of the Rio Summit, which was a seminal moment in the global response that ultimately led to the Paris Climate Agreement. I asked Wanjira how she would rate the progress in the decade since Rio and what faith she has in the UN process.
1: You know, I'll start with that, the UN process. I think the UN process is critical. We we hear a lot of criticism, we hear a lot of um You know, disappointment sometimes even, but it's it's a platform we have. It's a platform that many of us, especially in the vulnerable countries, there is no other platform that allows us to to have a vote on what goes on in global climate politics and so that's a very important platform and I'm grateful for the solidarity of the united nations in keeping that platform alive and making sure that the leadership there is is sensitive and 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 open to to these discussions but i think we have to move much faster we really need to to find a way that makes what started in Rio, yes, we've made some progress. There are some bright spots, but the future is bleaker still. We have more information about what we are facing, and we don't have much time to sit and celebrate. Yes, we must be inspired by the road we have traveled, but we certainly have to be aware that a lot more is expected of us.
0: And coming back to kind of emotional intelligence, is it fear that will bring that, that speed? Is it... Uh, Opportunity? What do you think makes people move faster? knowing what you know about emotional intelligence and the way people work in
1: yeah. that level. I think leadership is important. We need good leaders uh, who are aware and conscious. And so the voting public needs to be alert and put the right leaders in place so that we can move with haste. And we are starting to see that. There are bright spots in Australia and other places where we're starting to see the politics. And in Europe, green politics make a comeback in, in very big ways, because people realize this is their lives at And and for many of our generation, perhaps we feel like in 30 years we'll be 80 years old and maybe it doesn't matter. But for those who are young today, their whole lives are ahead of them. So we are wasting their time and that's why they're taking things in their own hands. We cannot be satisfied and sit on our laurels. Of course, we've made some progress. There are several bright spots and that's why we continue to march.
0: Right. And COVID has brought a lot of uncertainty and disruptions of of norms in daily life. And climate brings a lot of disruption. And we're seeing that that kind of um, disruption and uncertainty brings um, cranky voters. And sometimes those cranky voters are willing to vote in rather authoritarian uh, leaders in Brazil and Hungary, United States. So are you at all concerned that climate volatility can lead to authoritarianism, which is, you know, there's plenty of examples of that on the continent of Africa.
1: But fortunately well well I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that. I think that there there's plenty of that everywhere perhaps uh, no different in africa than elsewhere but i would say there are many a lot more bright spots uh, in in than than not we are seeing a lot more uh, young people coming into their voting age and making a very big statements with their votes and, and informing themselves much more i am i am a lot more optimistic about the fact that we will we will make a difference because we have no choice. I really think if we lose hope, it just means that we have given up and we cannot give up because if we give up, what's left, really?
0: Right. And to be fair, yeah, I shouldn't say that there's more authoritarian regimes in Africa. There's certainly plenty of generals in Latin America and elsewhere that have uh, taken that path. And Europe
1: and the U.S., everywhere. Uh,
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not just the South and North also. Yeah. Um, Looking ahead to COP27, what's being done to put loss and damage at the center of the agenda? And we might explain what loss and damage is and why it's so important.
1: Yeah, you know, we've talked about the fact that the injustice of climate change is that a lot of people who had nothing to do with this problem are facing untold suffering, and sometimes that suffering is so severe it's difficult to to bounce back from it. So the 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 climate, the Paris Agreement coded in it this concept of loss and damage. Loss being uh, the loss of lives and property, but damage being some of the irreversible uh, impacts of climate change. So you could have a situation in Bangladesh. This was very Uh, common in Kenya, in many parts of the world. Even now we we are seeing this in the north where there's a severe climate uh, event. And uh, after the event is over, there's some recovery, but there's also some irreparable damage. And that that is where the, the loss and damage comes in. And the Paris Agreement had in it that we need to avert address, we need to minimize, avert, and address loss and damage. We've done a decent job of minimizing and averting with all of the early warning systems and everything that we put in place. What we haven't done well with is addressing loss and damage. And this is what the COP27 uh, Glasgow Work Program on Loss and Damage is about. It's like getting loss and damage finally squarely on the map financing the Santiago Network, which is the, the, the agreement that was a, that was created, there was a program that was created to make the mechanism that to activate the, the loss and damage facility my hope is that COP27 will see that facility come to life. We'll see real financial flows into that facility or into facilities for loss and damage. And so it's a very politically charged discussion because a lot of people say that it is about reparations. It may be about reparations in a court of law, but it's about solidarity in a multilateral process. When you look at what's going on, COP26 is about solidarity. And that's where we cannot ignore the fact that even the... Paris Agreement coded it, we have to avert, we have to minimize, but we also have to address. We can't ignore addressing loss and damage.
0: That does sound optimistic, particularly given the Global North's uh, poor record at delivering on past promises made in Paris by Hillary Clinton Barack Obama. Uh, do not have great records of delivering on past promises and what I hear you thinking that that's going to change in, um, in COP27. That, that that I
1: hope so. I hope so. I think we saw a shift in, in COP26 with loss and damage on the agenda. Yes, we can't celebrate. It was minimal, but it was a bright spot. And so now we push on with the next level of that agenda.
0: And how important is it, particularly with respect to loss and damage, that this year's summit is being hosted on the African continent? It's in Egypt. You know, how much does the host matter?
1: The host matters. The the host sets the agenda, and I know that the the agenda will be uh, focusing on issues that are relevant to vulnerable countries and especially those in Africa. But let's not forget that if just because it's being held in Africa doesn't make it an African COP. I keep being reminded by young people that what will make it an African COP is that it addresses in more serious ways issues that matter for Africa and not just that it's held in Africa.
0: And we've uh, recall, you know, Greta Thunberg saying, you know, no more blah 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 about these international conferences, uh, you know, I think we recognize the importance of these dialogue, diplomacy and creating consensus, et cetera. But you know, talk about the youth who think that this is a, you know, all these adults talking, you know, communiques, et cetera. It's blah, blah, blah. Do you have some sympathy for that perspective? I
1: do. I do. Sometimes <laughs> I think it is blah, blah, blah. And, you, and we <laughs> we really have to show what that that's amounting to. And that's where they get frustrated is, yes, we talk and then what? And so they are, that follows is not not there. And that's why this has got to be about implementation, about activating real action so that we see movement um, for vulnerable countries. We see movement for finance. We see movement for financing of of renewables. We can't talk about renewables have got to be the priority for Africa when in fact we don't fund renewables, but for 2% of all renewable energy investments. We've got to shift that.
0: Let's talk about corporations and markets because we've been talking a lot about policy, international diplomacy. There's a lot of focus in the United States and elsewhere on moving markets, moving corporations at the both at the individual corporate lever level of uh, environmental, social, and governance, having them kind of practice a cleaner form of capitalism. What weight do you put in that, trying to kind of tinker with capitalism uh, around the edges of markets or inside an individual company to try be a little more virtuous voluntarily?
1: Well, that's a little bit beyond my my pay grade. I, I I you know my capitalism has never been a subject I I know uh, significant amounts about. I mean what what I do know is we have to shift the way we consume. We have to change the way we consume and understand that actually uh, our health depends on how we consume. We've got to reduce waste. We've got to produce how. Uh, Consu- our consumables in more um, circular ways so that the waste we have is not so much. We've got to protect nature so that we are not consuming and destroying uh, and driving in an insatiable, as if this planet has uh, uh, insurmountable amounts of resources for our use, that we've got to be very aware of how we produce, how we reduce waste, how we we, uh, protect the natural resources, and certainly how we produce our food.
0: And so how do you go about that in in your in your life, you know, as you do you l- limit your you work in Africa for a US-based organization? How do, how do you um, practice that yourself?
1: Well, I certainly try and the waste the waste element to me is is a very personal thing. We um just the idea that food goes to waste uh, drives me crazy. So I, I can definitely say, you know, the secularity of our food systems at home is something I'm really proud of. The 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 ability to compost in in an urban area like Nairobi and bring that compost into our gardens, to the ability to to cook what is local and eat what is local is is really uh, wonderful. And we are fortunate to have. Such bounty in the tropics of fruits and vegetables, and, and to ensure that our diets are just littered with what is local. I love that, just being able to produce and you know eat what what is 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 close by. Um, so those are some of the things. I mean, we don't do much um, driving around as a family. We we are, we are here. We live close to where the children go to school, and so we try and manage. But it's by far still a lot of. Uh, consciousness that's required in even how we are able to to live. And then I, I, I would say that my own activism is about making things more inclusive and, and fighting for inclusion wherever I can, for more non-motorized transit and for, for more ability to walk around and bike around our cities so that our cities are more livable and not we're building for people and not for cars. So those are some of the areas I think in my personal and professional
0: Life, and I know you're also involved with clean cook stoves, which are you mentioned earlier, very important. And it kind of boggles me that you know those have been around for a long time. There are lots of people who have have worked on that. It seems like such a simple thing. And I know there's obstacles for financing and supply change, but why there's been some progress on clean cook stoves? It seems like such a a simple thing. Why hasn't there been more progress on right?
1: I know. You're so right. You know, one time, Greg, a uh, very dear friend, she's late now. She was a dear friend of my mother's and continued to be a good friend of mine. She was 90 years old when I went to tell her that I was working on cook stoves. And she said, you know, Andrea, 60 years ago, I was working on cook stoves. And it was just felt like, to your point, like, why haven't we cracked this one? There's there's a lack, I think, a lack of understanding. We're understanding much more the, the, the enormity of the problem. You know, see, is believing, to start to see the fact that so many people, 80% of Kenyans, still cook on open fires. Imagine that. That is a huge number of people. And that's why the energy agenda has to be about access. We have SDG 7, sustainable energy for all, that is reliable, that is affordable, that is modern that is accessible for all. This has got to be a rallying cry. And that's what the uh, the clean cooking agenda is about, is acknowledging just the enormity of this problem that doesn't get seen yet it's pervasive. We cook two and three times every day and yet, we don't necessarily see this as as big a problem as it is, but I think it's becoming, as the science even around the impacts on health, it becomes the impacts on uh, the impact of indoor air pollution on outdoor air pollution is significant, and so all of those things together beginning to drive a real push on prioritizing clean cooking.
0: Yeah, that's happening certainly in the United States. There's awareness of indoor air quality from methane gas stoves. People now have uh, these air monitors because they're measuring uh, pollution from wildfires. And they also notice when they turn their stove on, the the pollution goes way up indoors. And that's an awareness. How much of that awareness, that resistance do you think is because women do much of the cooking and the men don't care or notice?
1: I think more that they don't notice. You know, I was in India once and had one of the most profound statements I've ever heard. It's this man after he heard about the impacts of cooking, and India was at the time actually beginning that subsidized LPG program for, for people to 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 have universal access to LPG gas for cooking. And this man said that after the, the workshop, he said, I never realized I was sending my wife to the kitchen to die. It was so profound that, it, it, you know, you eat the meals, but you don't realize the impact. I think it's, a, it's, it's always been one of those slow things. Women do the cooking. Women and children are often in the kitchen, and the impacts are more disproportionate on them.
0: So as we wrap up here at the end, you know, where do you go to? How do you maintain your own personal resilience and upbeat outlooks? You know, some of it clearly from your connection with your mother, it sounds like, uh, you know, you, uh, et cetera. But what's your source of renewal and resilience when you're thinking about climate and this injustice and equity uh, every day?
1: You know, I have to say, I'm so lucky to do the work that I do. I love my job and I love the the work that the World Resources Institute does at the intersection of just about every issue I care about. You have food, forests, water... Energy, cities, and how we move around cities. So sometimes I feel like at work, I'm working on my passion, I'm working on my purpose, and I'm just so grateful that work gives me the energy that it does. I don't feel drained by work, I feel energized by work. And in fact, I feel like I need to, I need to, um, to take to stop sometimes to do to <laughs> to to do other things. And I must say my family, I have two wonderful daughters, my husband and I do. And and just spending time with them and, and just being on a on a, you know, no just chilling out, as my youngest one likes to say, is is really just really um, energizing and, and wonderful. It 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 just reminds you that this is what it's about.
0: Mm, Thank you very much for sharing that. Wanjira Mathai is Managing Director for Africa and Global Partnerships at the World Resources Institute. It's been a pleasure and an honor, Wanjira. Thank you so much for coming on Climate One.
1: Oh, Greg, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about sustainable development and the power of women with Wanjira Mathai. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency, To hear more subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods we know that talking about climate can be hard awkward difficult sometimes depressing and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review if you're listening on apple you can do it right now on your device you can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend by sharing you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations Brad Marsland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basiglia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.